You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For 25 regularly scheduled episodes of This Day in Miami History, the subject of the day has always been focused on Miami. Whether, in most cases, it's an event that takes place in Miami, or, in the case of our episode in last January, it was the Miami Dolphins concluding their perfect season in Los Angeles, it's always been Miami-focused. Today, we're breaking that streak just a little. Today's event did not take place in Miami. Today's event did not take place in Florida. Today's event didn't even take place in the United States of America. However, one could very easily argue it's the most significant event in Miami's modern history. Appropriately, it took place in Havana, Cuba. That's where today, this day in Miami history, six Cuban nationals broke through the barriers of the Peruvian embassy in Havana eventually leading to a mass exodus across the Florida Straits in what came to be known as the Mariel Boat Lift. The high times and low times, all in the nightlife. I will open your eyes. But when the day breaks, you feel the sun kiss. If it's paradise, what you wish. The story of the Mariel Boat Lift is a complex one. And so trying to tell the whole thing in a 20 or 30 minute podcast episode doesn't do it justice. And so that's why I'm going to ask you to stop listening to this right now, just for a moment, and then come back. But subscribe to the NPR podcast, White Lies. Its second season, which was released earlier this year, deals with the conditions and after effects of Mariel. Now, the first season deals with the murder of the Reverend James Reeb, Uh, in Selma, Alabama in 1965, and it's also spectacular. We'll talk more about the podcast in a second, but let's talk about Mariel. During the 1970s, there had been somewhat of a liberalization between travel from the United States to Cuba, and there had been growing discontent with the Cuban government. And over the course of weeks in 1980, this discontent began to manifest until on April 1st, you have the break-in at the Peruvian embassy. For many days, it seemed like this moment, this breakdown of order in the Cuban regime, might reflect a moment of weakness, might reflect the moment that Fidel Castro would be brought down. Instead, he took the opportunity presented in the Peruvian embassy to redirect those that didn't want to stay in Cuba off his shores, onto boats, and across the Florida Straits. 
Around 8.30 last night, a boat did arrive with about 30 refugees. All but four had been in the Peruvian embassy. Our treatment by the Cuban uniformed police guarding the area was fairly correct. Although there were many that outside the embassy, when we got our safe conduct passes, they would dress as civilians and hit, throw rocks, throw wags, throw tomatoes. Were they throwing these at you through the embassy gate? The first day they did throw rocks inside the embassy and shots. Another boat pulled into Key West at 4.10 this morning, docking at the old naval base as did the first vessel. The Big Baby, a 70-foot long shrimp boat, carried 200 refugees, all from the Peruvian embassy. Early media coverage referred to the boat lift as a flotilla of freedom. But it didn't stay that way, for a variety of reasons. And the podcast, White Lies, explores those reasons and how some of these refugees wound up detained for years and years without appropriate legal protection. I was able to talk to one of the hosts of NPR's White Lies, Andrew Beck Grace, about Mariel, about his work, and about the amazing reveal that comes in the course of this podcast. I hope our conversation gives you an opportunity to learn a little bit more about Mariel, how important it is to Miami history, as well as the importance of journalism in a free society, and ultimately, what it really means to be an American. Hello, everyone. So happy to have you today, uh, this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whenever you may be listening. And I'm especially pleased and honored uh, to be joined by Andrew Beck Grace, uh, one third of the Alabama Ham Trio, uh, best known for his involvement with Chip Brantley in the amazing NPR podcast, White Lies. Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. So Andrew and Chip um, and, and the crew over at NPR have done two seasons of White Lies. We'll talk about the first season a little bit later because it's not really Miami specific, but it's amazing. Uh, but season two of White Lies, which has uh, been released and is all eight episodes are now out and available on your preferred podcast provider. Um, uh, it, it starts as a story about a jailbreak, uh, about a, a, a prison riot, I should say, not a jailbreak, a prison riot in Alabama. Um, and as, as a fan of season one, I was like, okay, great. Alabama oriented story. Love it. Fantastic. And then slowly in, in episode one, you come to realize, oh, wait a minute, this isn't just an Alabama story. This is very, very, very much a Miami story. And it's a story that really starts in Havana, uh, because on that day, um, uh, uh, Cubans, uh, stormed the Peruvian embassy, a bus was taken, plowed through the gates, uh, kicking off an enormous crisis for the Cuban government. And, and Andrew, I was wondering if you could kind of pick it up from there and talk a little bit about what that moment means for what eventually becomes the Mariel boat lift, which is a, a truly seminal moment in the development of modern Miami. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it all begins with the Peruvian embassy. I mean, we we have this event that, uh, that unfolds in a kind of cataclysmic way. I mean, leading up to April of 1980, there had been uh, a clampdown on people leaving the island. Um, there, it, it, it had become virtually impossible to get uh, an exit visa. Um, it really, technically, I think it was a lot harder to get an entrance visa from a country like the United States because of the ongoing problems of the of the back and forth and the diplomacy between the two countries. And so folks were just desperate and the harbors had become patrolled. I mean, there had been 
a number of incidents where people had broken into embassies claiming political asylum. And this was by far the largest one and the sort of most violent one, I guess, because what ends up happening is they ram this bus through the Peruvian embassy gates. There are two Cuban guards who shoot at the bus as it's coming in. And in the crossfire, one of the guards is shot by the other guard. But that, and, and the man dies. And that incident itself provokes Castro because immediately he says, send these people out of the embassy out and they're they're going to prison they you know they caused the death of this guard and the the um the Peruvian embassy uh essentially says actually we think they have a legitimate political asylum claim and so we're going to keep them here which pisses off Castro who says fine well I'm not I'm taking all my guards away and you can see what what will happen next he thinks maybe a few hundred people will leave but by the next day there's 10,000 people crowded in the Peruvian embassy there's incredible documentary footage of this and lots of if, if anyone studied Marielle have seen this stuff uh it's just this massive humanity i think he really miscalculated at that point to to uh, give this invitation uh and so many of the characters that we have found and, and you know their their journey to Mar- to the united states to miami really began in the Peruvian embassy in in, in downtown Havana or in embassy row in Havana um, so yeah, it's a fascinating story about how how that Peruvian embassy incident became this sort of international incident that becomes one of the largest mass migrations, you know, cons- consolidated mass migrations in the Western Hemisphere. What always intrigues me so much about those very early days in April 1980 um, is that you know the, this this bus goes through the gates April 1st, and you have this 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 great uncertainty in Cuba about how to approach. And for a short time, um, there was a, a great book um, uh, that was published in the 80s, uh, Castro's Ploy, America's Dilemma, the 1980 Cuban boat lift. And th- those very early days and weeks, there was a great sense, I think, both within the Cuban government and within the American government, that this was an enormous problem for Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the boat lift, as you so deftly explore um, in White Lies, it winds up becoming and becoming presented even even more so than perhaps becoming but becoming presented as a problem for the United States there was great belief that like this was a turning point for the Castro regime that perhaps this was a downfall on its way it, it, it truly was a gambit like okay instead of trying to shut this down we're going to open it up and how much do you think Marielle acts as a a a valve for the cuban government where initially this was going to be an enormous humanitarian crisis for them it winds up becoming this kind of judo move where they're able to now redirect the perceived problems onto the american government yeah i mean that's exactly right and that is the sort of remarkable thing about castro's political abilities is that he he saw this thing that was so clearly in the early days a travesty for his for the optics of his government i mean the idea that 10,000 people would want to leave, uh, that you'd be able to just immediately, you know, offer this kind of flippant thing. Oh, well, if you any any of these gusanos, these worms, these traitors to the revolution, anybody who wants to leave, just let them go because we don't need them anyway. And then you see this unbelievable outpouring of humanity that wants to get off the island. Um, it becomes like a, a pretty significant moment. And he, he really deftly figures out how to capitalize on it. I mean... In Miami, the Cuban-American community, some of the largest protests ever in Miami's history were in favor of those in the Peruvian embassy in the days right after before Mariel starts because, you know, every single every single Cuban exile that I've spoken to in Miami is waiting still for the downfall of the regime. Uh, everyone who fled the island has some significant connection there still, wants to go back, wants this 
you know, what seemed maybe in 1980, like it still was, even though at that point it's 20 years old, it still seemed like a, a thing that might have an expiration date. Um, maybe not so much now, but that's how it felt in 1980. So the idea that this was going to be the moment, um, that was lodged in so many Cuban Americans' minds. And so they, so Castro just figures out how to subvert that. He says, come on down and pick your people up and pick up these folks who are in the Peruvian embassy and we'll let them go. But in But in reality, what he ends up doing is really kind of hamstringing the ability of Cuban Americans to actually bring back their relatives. He begins putting on these boats, not only folks from the Peruvian embassy, but people that have been arrested for low-level crimes in Cuba who have served time or on certain watch lists or whatever it might be, people that that have, uh, lots of folks who've been convicted of like vagrant, or not even convicted, but in prison because of like vagrancy issues or just whatever, people that had not found their niche in the Cuban regime, people who are political prisoners as well, um, people who are dissidents. And so and it's it's not just, it's not that the boat lift was filled with hardcore criminals, but the, but the way in which Cuban Americans expected their relatives to return from Marielle on these boats. And instead, you get strangers, many of whom are Afro-Cuban, many of whom are young men, unskilled, uneducated in many ways, uh, or low skill or, you know, white collar skill or blue collar blue collar skills, you you just have this real sort of confusion about, wait, what is this? What is happening here? And that's when the narrative changes and when Castro ultimately kind of wins this sort of battle of the optics. Um, You have to also remember that this is Carter's, uh, you know, waning days of his president, what would be, he was running for reelection, but Carter is a humanitarian. I mean, Carter's entire sort of premise as a politician was human rights and, and welfare of, 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 people that are less fortunate. And the idea that in this case, you would welcome these people. We are a nation of refugees, open hearts and open arms, he says. Um, you know, that that's a that that would have stood in stark contrast had Reagan been in office when, when this thing unfolded. Um, so I think that has something to do with it, too. So what I, I think, too, is so interesting, and, and you mentioned this in the podcast and, and, and explore this, it really it's kind of the, the crux of the story, that so much about how the American government deals with Marielle is through this uh, white hat, black hat kind of approach to those who arrive, that there are good arrivals and bad arrivals. And the bad arrivals Mm -hmm. had been in prison, and these are the worst of the worst. But then you Mm -hmm. kind of correctly point out, and it's one of these things that, you know, even living in Miami, you don't really necessarily put these things together, that the whole idea of, of taking this kind of special approach to these refugees is that they're coming from a country that we view as an oppressive, authoritarian dictatorship. Um, what kind of people are going to wind up in the prison? Like, it's it's people that are going to be opposed to that same regime that you oppose. And so right. it's such a... Once you, once you guys walk through this journey of who are the people that actually have the criminal records that wind up... Um, in in the trouble that you you explore so much in the podcast, it's kind of mind blowing that like the people that really could have should have been your closest allies in this this opposition wind up being the same people that receive some of the worst treatment from the American government. It it really seems right. quite a betrayal. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, I think it's again, it's surely the optics. It's just this this idea that, and the press plays a large role in the shifting of those optics as well. That. When, when the boat lift unfolds, it really, for the first week and a half, two weeks, is called the Freedom Flotilla. It is this idea that we are, we are doing what we say our refugee policy is supposed to do, which is 
rescue people from communist nations. Like that's basically how refugee policy worked in the, in the United States uh, throughout the Cold War. Um, and so that's what's happening. But the minute that there's this suspicion, and that suspicion largely or- originates in the Cuban American community in Miami, when when you have Cuban Americans who've chartered a boat, who you know have made money in Miami, maybe they came with money from Cuba, but they've definitely like done well for themselves in Miami between the revolution and 1980. So they have enough money to say like, I'm going to go, I mean, one guy in our podcast jokingly says, but I always think about it this way that I'm going to go pick up grandma. That's what he says. Right. Um, and the idea that, you know, we're just going to, Oh gosh, we got this opportunity. Let's just get a boat and go down there and get it. But then when the boat returns and it's filled, not with your family members, but with people that don't look a lot like you and that grew up under entirely under the Castro regime. I mean, if you're talking about a 20 year old in 1980, you're talking about someone who, who does not know the pre Castro Cuba. So Every sort of cultural awareness that a Cuban American would have had of what it means to be a fellow countryman, that is not present in these people. So not only is it not your relative, but it's these people who look very different than you and who have very different life experiences and who are um, thinking about the relationship to the United States in a very different way. You know, they're th- they're saying like, I, I economically I wanted to come to this country because I want more opportunities as opposed to having this sort of visceral anti-communist kind of thought process. In fact, some of the folks that we interviewed, Mariel Cubans who came over, they have a much more dynamic perception of of the virtues of the of the Cuban Revolution and the problems of the Cuban Revolution. And and they lived, you know, they lived through the oppression and most almost to a one, the folks we talked to did not want to go back to Cuba, but they had a much more dynamic perception of what what the revolution had meant to people who lived on the island. It, it was not just as black and white as it is to many exile communities in in the US. Um so, yeah, I just I think that that part of it and then what happens is really, I mean, your show is about Miami, so I'm going to have to call out sort of a large section of Miami Cubans. Miami Cubans sort of turn on the Mariel refugees um, and they'll tell you this themselves. The, those who are introspective and retrospective enough to sort of see it this way, they they just say these are not our people. I mean, basically, that's that's the kind of the gist of it, essentially, that these. Yes, they're coming from our island, but they don't look and act and want the same things that we do. And so we're we're separating ourselves from them. And it's actually one of the reasons why really kind of compelling. We don't really go too much into it in our story as these sort of excludables, the folks who end up the Cuban, the Cubans who came over during Mariel, who end up being incarcerated essentially by the immigration and naturalization system or, or, you know, throughout the eighties and into the nineties without due process. uh, They don't have many advocates in the Miami community. Um, There's not a huge upswelling of, I mean, there are a handful of them. Rafael Penalver in particular is an attorney in Miami who worked uh, diligently with um, Bishop Augustine Roman, who, you know, there there were voices in the Miami Cuban uh, diaspora that really spoke up for these guys, but it was not the majority of their legal representation. Um, It was not not a priority. As Gary Lashaw, an attorney in Atlanta, told us, these folks essentially had no constituency. Um, Cuban Americans are very, very politically powerful, but it never became something that uh, that resonated to the sort of congressional level of the Cuban American caucus or whatever. Well, that actually leads in kind of perfectly to, to what I wanted to ask about next, which is that uh, uh, you and, and your team, you and Chip, and, and, and you guys came down here. I mean, and spoiler too, you went to Cuba as well. Um, to report out this this amazing story, but you you spent some time down here, and getting familiar with the politics of Miami, and and in particularly the the exile politics of Miami. Um, 
what did you learn from that that maybe you didn't know coming in? What difficulties did you encounter, if at any? What 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 was illuminated for you? Because it is definitely, as someone who was not born in Miami but has now like come to you know I've lived here fifteen years. It's it's to yeah. me it's one of one. Um, there's nothing right. quite like it. No, that's absolutely true. And I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a white southerner. I'm from the South, from Alabama many generations. And in a way, it feels a little bit like the insularity of that kind of community that you essentially have to be born into it to really fully understand it. And yet there are mountains of books written about the experience of white Southerners and and sort of the conflict and dilemmas, especially as it relates to racial justice about white Southerner about white Southerners and being a white Southerner. Um, but you can't really, you can know it in an academic sense. We can't really understand it unless you're born here, unless you have deep roots in this place. And in, in the same way I felt about Miami Cubans, it's like, I, I can go down there and talk to as many people as I can. We talked to some incredible people, lots of really incredibly smart people who gave me great insights and, and our team, great insights into what, what it feels like and what it means. But at the same time, you know, you're removed from personal experience. And so you're, you're trying to navigate the information and the, and the sources that you're getting, but you're also trying to sort of allow those voices to speak for themselves to a certain regard. So for instance, like Michael Bustamante, who's a professor at the university of Miami, he is himself Cuban American, uh, or his, his family came from Cuba, um, on his dad's side, I believe it, it he was a, a very helpful sort of, um, interpreter for us, you know, and, and we really, in many ways, and in the episode that deals principally with Miami tried to, in many ways, allow him to to sort of characterize these things because it's not really our job. I, you know, we are outsiders. I'm, I'm very aware of this notion of sort of parachute journalism where you come into a place. And I mean, the South is rife with that because there are plenty of people who see the poverty of the South, the racial injustice of the South, the deep systemic problems of the South and think like, well, I'll go there for a week and I'll be able to fully understand it. You know, and it's of course way more complex than that. So I think we, Chip and I in particular, are very aware of that as white Southerners. Like we don't want to do that to another region or another group of people. So getting to getting to a place where you can actually talk to folks who you who you know understand the dynamics in a in a unique way, not in a kind of knee-jerk way, but also talking to people who understand it only in a knee-jerk way, because that helps you kind of, you know, massage these things. I mean, the, the big regret I have is that I, I don't speak great Spanish. And every time I was in Miami, especially if I was driving around in a cab with anyone over 50 uh, who was Cuban-American, and they were listening to Cuban-American AM stations, I just always wished that I could follow <laughs> what was going on in those stations, because I still know to a certain generation of Cuban-Americans, that is a vital sort of gossip place and a you know, it's, a, it's a vital vital information ecosystem that i don't feel like i ever really tapped into um and it was huge during mariel too i mean during mariel the radio stations were uh principally driving so much of what was happening not only public opinion but also just like information about getting down there so yeah that's i, I have regrets um i don't regret any moments i've spent in miami I, miami is an incredible place i have a, a huge I, I always thought of miami as this kind of like strange un, you couldn't understand it like what even was this place almost feels like LA in a way it's like it's just there are too many people too many different kinds of people but it, there's such a distinctiveness to it which I realize now having visited it yes it's this tourist place but it's also like all these other things as well and it's a wonderful place an incredibly rich place artistically and culturally and uh, and historically, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing because I think it's it's a great place to talk about in the way that you're talking about it. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Uh, the, the filmmaker Billy Corbin says of Miami, mm-hmm. and he's done so many great um, works about Miami, that uh, Miami's today is America's tomorrow. And I think oh, all yeah, the good and bad and everything in between, <laughs> whether you're happy or unhappy about it, I do think it's definitely true that like it is, it is such a place of chaos because it is the beta version of what is going to come <laughs> everywhere else. Um, and sometimes yeah. the beta version has bugs and sometimes the beta version is a revelation. But, um, but yeah, so it's, uh, I'm glad you were able to come down here and kind of uh, take in that experience. And just, I, I just love the audio that you include in season two when you guys are like coming off the Palmetto and it's like, oh, we're trying to get an 826. I'm like, oh God, they're, just, they're going through the Golden Glades interchange right now. Or like, oh, poor, <laughs> yeah, yeah. poor guys. They're just trying to get, you know, through. we didn't, yeah, it, we don't even, we don't really know what we're doing when we're driving around, but so many people from Miami have heard that sequence and have like hysterically laughed because apparently what we're doing and not doing well is what lots of people don't do well. So yeah, the driving around Miami, I mean, look, the, the, we reported this story in Miami and in Atlanta, and those are two terrible places to drive around basically. Yeah. Um, it was as beautiful as it is, but when we'd be staying in North Beach or something and be like, oh, we've got an interview uh, in a few hours. How, how far is the drive? It's like 45 minutes. You know, it's like, but it's only seven miles away. Like what's happening here? You know? um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it definitely was, was, and we spent a lot of time in the car. This again, wishing that I could speak uh, better Cuban yeah. Spanish to be able to understand what's going on at the radio station. Welcome to Miami. Uh, truly yeah. a, a great way to know that you're in Miami. Um, so I want to, I don't want to take too, uh, too much of your time, um, but I, I do want my listeners to understand a little bit about season two. And then I also want to ask a question to you about season one. So I'm going to give you a minute sure. here. I just want you to, to tell us a little bit about what the overarching theme is of season two of White Lies, because I think it is a really amazing show that if you listen to this podcast, like honestly, stop listening and go subscribe, go subscribe, follow whatever you call it now. Go do that. And then come back and listen to the synopsis because it's going to tickle your the the parts of your brain that you're going to be like, ooh, I need to listen to that. But so if you can tell us a little <laughs> bit about what the, the core of season two is about. Yeah. I mean, so Chip and I found basically heard about this and then found images from this um, from this prison riot that happened in, in Atlanta, I mean, in Talladega, Alabama in 1991. And it just seems so incongruous that you would have basically the, the prison was taken over by a bunch of Mariel Cubans who had come here during the boat lift, who had found themselves detained by the immigration service in some cases for over a decade, because at that point, you know, Mariel happened in, this happened in 1991, Mariel happened in 1980. And so it just seemed so strange. And the minute we scratched the surface of that and, and came to discover that, you know, there had been another prison riot in Atlanta in 1987. In fact, it was the largest prison riot in American history that had been taken. The prison had been taken over by the same group of people. Some actually, literally some of the exact same people, um, because they were protesting 
this indefinite detention. And then it was like, wait a second, we don't we don't do that. I mean, we do that in Guantanamo with with folks from the war on terror, and that is a that is a moral outcry. But the idea that we would indefinitely detain non-citizens in U.S. federal prisons. How how in the world did that happen? And then we discovered the story of the Atlanta Legal Aid Society and their work on be- on behalf of these guys. And, you know, just one thing led to another to realize that there was actually this really incredible, sprawling story about the creation of our modern immigration system. Um, Elliot Young, one of the scholars that we talked to in, in, uh, in, in the making of the show, said to me, and he's, he wrote a great book called Detention... I'm sorry, I've got it right here. Which one is it? <laughs> um, Forever Prisons, uh, which is about basically the creation of immigration detention and the, and the sort of carceral state around immigration. But he said to me early on as we were reporting that, you know, these laws that allowed the indefinite detention of Mariel Cubans to happen, they had been on the books since some Supreme Court rulings in the 50s, but it had never been practiced by the American government. But Mariel provided a sort of location for us to try out what it would be like to incarcerate immigrants non-citizens as they arrived in this country. And it radically and fundamentally changed the way our immigration system worked. And that's all because of Marielle. So we we sort of wanted to explore the roots of the of the criminal sort of the criminalization of immigration that happened during the Reagan era. Uh, and this particular sort of strange story that had this Alabama hook, we really love mystery and weirdness and strangeness. And the idea that these guys somehow got onto this roof of this prison and you could barely make out their faces and they were advocating for themselves, but it was very unclear how they even got there in the first place. That's the sort of mystery that ends up unspooling over the course of our eight episodes to, to tell a story about how we created the modern immigration system that we have. I want to talk a little bit about mystery um, mm. because both season one and season two of White Lies has that mystery to it. And it's kind of the perfect way to segue into the, the, the last thing I want to talk about, which is the non-Miami thing. But it's really as someone who is a, um, a teacher of American government, American history, um, the story of Bloody Sunday in Selma is um, like one of. I find to be one of the most interesting chapters in American history, that what, what eventually leads to the creation of the Voting Rights Act. And there was this giant mystery hanging over the events around Bloody Sunday. Uh, and without, again, spoiling too much of season one, I enjoyed the show tremendously. But the reveal of season one is one of the most like gobsmacking moments I've ever had in my whole life <laughs> because you essentially take what was this well-known part of this well-known history uh, and and solve it. Um, and, and as listeners, we get to listen to it. And in season two, there is this other mystery that is hanging out for decades that you're able to solve. And I guess just like as someone that has a, a, a background, uh, some experience in the world of journalism, what's that feel like? Because <laughs> that has to be uh, the best. Like I can't like, is there any way to describe what it's like to like, Hey, I I'm trying to solve this unsolvable problem that Pete, like, it's like math almost. So, like there's these formulas right. that people can't crack. And then someone finally mm-hmm. does it. What's it like to like actually solve these mysteries? What's it like? I don't know. I sound like a fanboy. but <laughs> yeah. like, what, What's that like? No, no, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, I'm, I'm a fanboy too. Not of me, but of like just that process. I mean, journalism is incredible. Like the idea that you can, dig into something that really happened and really, in this case, still talk to people who know what happened and find a path to get to the truth of what it was. I mean, that's just, that is an an immense privilege, frankly, as a journalist to be able to do that. And it's a hugely important thing for democracy, for people to be allowed to do that and to be ideally paid to do that because it, it is a thing that is so important for 
the sustenance of any healthy healthy place and any healthy nation is to have have there be people who are asking questions and trying to discover the truth behind things that have been long hidden. So, and I mean, it is an extraordinary privilege, frankly, it's, it's, uh, it's the work of my life. I mean, it's been the greatest joy I've ever had. So it's it, but you know, the very particular moments when that, when that thing is happening, like you are realizing you're going to figure it out is yeah, it's better than pretty much anything. I've, I have two small children. So besides the, uh, <laughs> the birth of my children and sort of the mystery and joy of parenthood, uh, it's, it ranks right on up there. I mean, it's just, just that kind of meaningful life defining work. Um, so yeah, it's been incredible. I, I can only imagine because it's just, it's, it's one of those things. It's why I've, I, I recommend white lies outside of, of just like doing this on the show today. Yeah, I literally, thanks. one of my very good friends who's also a listener of the show, uh, we were playing uh, um, uh, FIFA on PlayStation last night, and I told him like, "Hey, I'm I'm talking to one of the co-hosts of of White Lies tomorrow." He's like, "You will love this show," uh, and he literally pulled up the description. He's like, "Mariel, jailbreak? I'm in." That was it. I'm like, "You have no <laughs> idea though. It's going to get so much better. It's already good. It's going to get so much better." So I have one more thing yeah. to ask you, and then uh, then I will sure. let you go. But I I saw this I think in Chips. Twitter thread. Are, are you keeping the Twitter thread about the show? Or is yeah. You, okay, yeah, yeah. so you are. So no, is you. Am, yeah, yeah, so I, yeah. I always do this in my show because to me it is the most invaluable resource I have. But you also shouted them out. So I just want to ask you, how much did you enjoy using the Wolfson Archive? Oh, man. That place is incredible. <laughs> I mean, it is wild. It's, I, I, I'm not, you know, I do, I've done a lot of this work over the years. And I've never come across, it, I mean, Archives like that exist, but it is so rare to come across an archive like that where everything is digitized. Like it is remarkable because I I work in I live in Alabama. I work here, and I mean I literally work in this room where I'm talking to you from. This is where I do all my work, and so I you know I just don't even have to leave this computer and and just look at basically the cinematic and televisual history of the entirety of the 80s and 90s of of Miami. It's just an incredible. There's no other, there's nothing comparable in Atlanta, for instance, uh, that I know about or that I've ever been able to find. Um, it just is so rare and it's such an incredible resource. Uh, and also it's just like you would just get sucked into, I mean, this happens in research all the time. We, we always call them like the sort of adjacencies where you'll, you'll in a newspaper article, for instance, you'll pull up newspapers.com or if you, we have a subscription to newspapers.com, which is great archival resource same when you when yeah when you when you look at you know you actually look at what the paper looked like on that day so you're not only looking at the article but you're looking at like what the advertisement was for it or what was on the front page that day and honestly in many ways and i love this is what i love about real libraries like going i like to go to a library find the card catalog where the thing is go to it and then look in the stacks because those adjacencies things that are next to each other are going to also tell you so much about the context in which this event was happening, you know? And so I love that about the Wilson archive is that you've got, you know, this first story is about the, is about the boat lift, for instance. And then it's like, well, let me just watch. What's the second story? That's like something sort of crazy that happens next. And you're like, man, if I was living in Miami and watching the news that night and I heard these two stories back to back, I would think everything about the world was going upside down, you know? And you just, you can't, it, we get to curate that for the listener, but the experience of actually being a researcher and looking at all this stuff in its totality, it's incredible. So I'm, yeah, big shout out to the Wolfson Archive. It's a, it's a great place. Yeah, it's really, I, I, I use them, Every single episode. It's the only resource I think. Well, unless the episodes from like the twenties or something. But every episode where yeah, there's yeah. any audio, it's almost always from the Wolfson. And I always make sure to shout them out every episode because it's just I, I feel like everyone who lives or has interest in South Florida should be spending at least like an hour a month on that website just putting yeah. in, you know, 
Don Shula, if you like the Dolphins, and just go look right. at all the well, stuff. Well, I mean, Shula, or you know, you know we found uh, Ralph Rennick, who was a who was a con- you know, if you, if you grew up in Miami in the eighties, you would know who Ralph Rennick was. I didn't grow up in Miami, so I didn't know who Ralph Rennick was. But he did these like really popular commentaries at the end of the episodes, and some of them are incredibly insensitive toward the, the Marielle Cubans in particular, and I mean, just violently <laughs> insensitive. I mean, just incredible. What and and you realize like. He's the voice to so many, especially Anglo Miamians, and it, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. You, it's just so invaluable to go into the archives and really sort of live with the media as it was created at the time and feel what it would have been like to have these messages told to you over and over again. Um, so yeah, it's it. Oh man, I'm I'm glad you guys have it. I wish I, I wish every city had something like we that. We did an, an episode about um, about Ralph uh, quitting WTV oh, and running for governor, and so there was just oh, wow. a great opportunity to pluck out every like. Uh, good, bad, and in between clip from Ralph over the yeah. four years that he was he was the news voice. You know, he was right. Walter Cronkite for Miami. Um, yeah, so. man. There's a um, you know one of the one of the clips we use in the show. And we don't ID him, and I went back and forth on whether or not we should. Was the um, the and Ralph Rennick was who pointed it. I mean, we found a Ralph Rennick editorial where he pointed to this. Uh, it was the county coroner who says this insane stuff about the Mario Cubans. That they're subhuman. Yes. They're not even animals, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you, it's hard. It's hard unless a historian or someone like a journalist like me, like it's really hard to know that stuff until you get into the stacks and start reading about it. And then you think like, oh man, this guy was actually creating a perception, you know, and it's, and it was going out into the community and it was pretty much unquestioned. And so what is going to be the long-term effect of those sort of messages being communicated the way that they were, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, it's, you're getting me excited about reporting. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. Cause we need season three on, on whatever <laughs> yeah. it's going to be. I will be eating it up um, uh, like a delicious snack. Um, but, uh, Andrew Beckrace, thank you so much for your time. One, thank you so much for your work too. Um, and just thank you. Thank you so much for providing your insight to me and, and our listeners today. I really cannot say thank you enough. Oh man. It's a, it's a, it's a joy. I look forward to listening to more of your show. Thank you. I was able to tell it to his virtual face through zoom, but I again want to thank Andrew Beckrace for his time and his insight on this really important topic. Uh, I also want to thank Chip Brantley, who was unable to uh, chat with us uh, when we recorded uh, last month uh, just due to an unexpected emergency. But Chip was very kind and actually set everything up for us, which was lovely. So both Chip and Andrew, um, thanks to both of them. Uh, Again, please stop what you are doing and subscribe to White Lies from NPR. It is, to me, my favorite nonfiction podcast, period. Uh, in terms of nonfiction podcasts, in terms of kind of newsy podcasts, in terms of, of just, I don't know, it, it's a great, great, great piece of work. And if you're interested in Miami history, it is not possible that you will not like season two of White Lies from NPR. Um, as always, we do have this little show here that you've listened to through this point. Um, please do make sure that if you're checking us out for the first time, you're uh, following us on your preferred podcast provider or su- subscribing, depending on what service you use. If you've done that already, thank you, and thank you for listening. If you'd like to leave a review on your podcast provider, that would be fantastic, particularly if it's a five-star review. Uh, and do make sure you follow us on social media, at This Day Miami Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Mastodon. Um, there's always uh, episode-specific content, uh, but there's some random goodies out there, too. Um, just late last month, uh, the news came out that Lolita would be leaving 
um, the Miami Seaquarium for the Pacific Nor Northwest, back where she was born uh, more than 50 years ago. Uh, and I was able to dig out some video from the Wolfson Archive uh, of Lolita arriving on Virginia Key back in 1970. So uh, do follow there. There's some good stuff. Um, and as always, thank you so much for, for listening, for engaging, uh, for giving me your episode ideas, and for everything. And so until next time, I've been Matthew Bunch. The high times and low times All in the nightlife When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.